difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky. Keith is out this week, brushing up on his drag racing and organ playing skills, but he'll be back for our next recording. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're exploring two films that are haunting in both the literal and the puntastic senses. Both films feature a car crash that leaves a character in limbo, unseen by the people around them, and trying to navigate what may be the afterlife or just a rest stop en route to the real thing. Genevieve, fire up the organ music and remember to put your soul into it. Scott, may I have this dance? Uh, I actually have urgent business elsewhere. But before I start running in place like a Scooby-Doo character who sees a g-g-g-ghost, let me lay out a little more of this week's plan. We'll be talking about Herc Harvey's creepy cult hit Carnival of Souls, a 1962 black-and-white horror drama about a woman who emerges from a river after a terrible car accident and subsequently can't ditch the strange figures following her or the sensation that something is terribly wrong. Then we'll bring in David Lowry's new indie film, A Ghost Story, about the lead-up and aftermath to a car crash, and how a lonely, silent ghost explores the nature of time outside of time. This is pretty heady stuff, Tasha. Are you ready for it? I mean, I don't even see the point in talking about any of this, given that the universe will eventually collapse in on itself, and this podcast will be lost to the void, like all creative endeavors. But given that that's probably hundreds of billions of years away, and we've got to fill the time somehow, sure, why not? We'll dig into life and afterlife right after this break. souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. Carnival of Souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture making. Listening to Herc Harvey talk about the genesis of his movie Carnival of Souls on the extras of the Criterion edition, it's a little hard to believe that a process this arbitrary led to a movie this eerie and memorable. Harvey was a university instructor and a director of industrial and educational films in Lawrence, Kansas, when he started to get the itch to create something narrative, largely just to see if he could do it. While traveling, he happened to see the ruins of an old ballroom, part of a rotting carnival on the shores of the Great Salt Lake in Utah, and he mentally marked that as a potential set for a film. Based on a dreamlike image involving corpses dancing in that ballroom, he turned to John Clifford, his writer on educational shorts like To Touch a Child, to write a script. There are certainly clunky aspects to the resulting film, which does sometimes have the quality of a 1960s educational movie, with characters explaining their own character traits, or observers describing the scene to the audience to make sure they haven't missed anything. But the portrait of isolation and division that emerges from the film is really remarkable and unsettling. Candace Hillegas stars as Mary Henry, an antisocial young woman who studied classical organ at college and has a job lined up as a church organist. But before she can leave for her new job, a friend accepts a drag-raising proposal from a stranger, then drives her car with Mary in it off of a bridge. Mary implausibly emerges from the wreck three hours later, but refuses to let the event shake her. She heads to Salt Lake City, where she keeps the pastor of her new church at arm's distance and tries to fend off an aggressive suitor named Johnny at her new boarding house. But the weird phenomena keep piling up. 
Sometimes her car radio won't play anything but organ music. A pale man with black-smeared eyes looms around every corner. Sometimes people can't see or hear Mary, and she's a little obsessed with that abandoned carnival up the road. People familiar with the Twilight Zone or the Ambrose Beers classic An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge or the impossibility of surviving underwater for three hours will probably see the end of the film coming a mile away. But Carnival Souls isn't about the destination. It's about the journey, and more specifically, it's about Mary's character. She's isolated by choice in an era and an environment that can't understand her, and she's lived very little of her life before the event that seemed to end it. Harvey and his industrial film crew, inspired by Ingmar Bergman and John Cocteau, pile up the memorable images as she navigates a world that increasingly makes no sense. And audiences over the years have reacted strongly to the film's eerie images and bleak tone. When the film got a minimal release back in 1962, it gradually became a cult hit and then an acknowledged classic. But Harvey says the distributor embezzled the film's profits and ran off, making it impossible for Harvey and his team to make further narrative movies. He continued to make educational films up until the 1980s, including Signals, Read a More Weep, and Shake Hands with Danger, both of them written by John Clifford. But he never returned to narrative filmmaking. It's as though, like Mary, he tried something new in life, had it cut off before it really got started, and continued to haunt the world he'd only barely connected to. This is the shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. But try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man, the man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the Carnival of Souls. She is a girl driven mad by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. I like being with you, really I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. Honey, you don't want to go in there all by yourself, do you? But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the Carnival of Souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own. What did you guys think of Carnival of Souls, both as a horror film and as a drama film? Well, I think we know that if it was really a horror film, I wouldn't be here discussing <laughs> it. So. Yeah, we've, we've, we've picked a very clever pairing of, of non-horror horror films. I mean, it does have, like, you, you've said that what horrifies you in horror films, what turns you off in horror films is jump scares. And there, there are a fair number of jumps here. There, there are, but basically, like, black and white horror is easier in general for me, just because you can, like, disengage to a certain extent. Something like Psycho is, is fine for me. But I think this movie and A Ghost Story, for, for that matter, are, like, what I like about horror films or what I like about horror films I do like, which is eeriness. I, I like being in a odd, unsettling space without necessarily being anxious about being startled. I had never seen this movie before. It just completely passed me by. I think maybe like it seems like a lot of people came across it for the first time on weird TV broadcasts or something. And 
I think that had already ceased by the time I would have seen it on TV. So this is my my first experience with it. And it is, it's a strange film, but it's really engrossing for all its strangeness. There's a lot to discuss. But uh, Scott, I'm assuming that you have seen this before. Yes, Scott was actually really excited when I suggested this pairing, which is a little unusual. Scott, what? what? (laughs) (laughs) It's unusual that I'm excited about things that you suggest. Yes. Yeah, it really is. I mean, our our film tastes are so often at odds. Like, uh, they're, they're, often a sort of grudging I guess we can do that but your your enthusiasm for this film while not surprising to me was exciting what, what is it that you like I, mean, about I, this I film? do I do enjoy the cult cinema and this is one that uh, I caught up with on VHS it um, <laughs> certainly did not look as good as it looks on Criterion I just think the film is a miracle I mean it's a, it's one of those films that just emerged from out of the blue a, a, a total one-off it reminds me of like the honeymoon killers in that respect just something just like how did this thing even happen it has some precedent I mean, we can talk about you can talk about something like occurrence on Oak Creek Bridge which was contemporary they, they're both 1962 I think and obviously Harvey had some influences but they were mostly European so that mix of having European art influence by right? people like Cocteau and uh, Bergman and then also working within the realm of drive-in movies and industrial films gives this film just a very unique place in American cinema. I, I love it. And it's just mesmerizing. I mean, I, there's not a frame of this film that just does not rivet you in some weird way. It's just this one-of-a-kind experience. I mean, in a way, it almost feels like the amateurishness of the crew in in not having dealt with narrative film before kind of helps create that mm-hmm. that mesmerism because there's mm-hmm. so much about it that's just not quite what you expect with with film trained eyes. There's a lot of oddball framing or cases where <laughs> it's a, a terrific case where you know something eerie is going to happen because characters on screen visible on screen, but the protagonist doesn't see what's going on, and it's just it's not how a modern film would high, mm-hmm. handle that particular jump scare at yeah. all it's I, it's outsider art yeah it really is yeah. the the acting too i think really kind of falls into that sort of off but it works d- description you know like candace hillegas is she was a trained actress right mm-hmm. she was uh she trained with lee strasberg apparently but even she is like you know you can tell she doesn't have a lot of experience on screen even though she like is at least creating a performance in a way that a lot of the other actors in this movie are not you know they are a kind of locally cast mm-hmm. people with not much acting experience and it shows or, or if they do have camera experience it's in the industrial sort of films that that her carvey was making mm-hmm. but that awkwardness on screen just contributes to the the tone the the tone of like something being off mm-hmm. you know people aren't acting the way humans act you're not experiencing life in a natural way and it all kind of fits with the, what the film is doing. It also just kind of feeds into, like, she's a very peculiar character. One of the things Harvey did kind of lament later in life, having not put more of in the film, is a sense of what she was like before yes. the drag race. Mm-hmm. And that really is lacking in the film because, I mean, from the way he talks about the film, you're supposed to get the sense that she's someone who really hasn't lived much of life, who hasn't been close to people, who hasn't spent time with people, who doesn't really necessarily like people people. 
And as a result, she has this this awkwardness about her. Like she is a little off-putting. She wants to keep people at a distance because she isn't very comfortable with them. And she feels a little uncomfortable both in her skin and the situation here, which I think really comes across. I, I would not want the film to begin any differently than it does. I, I like that the film begins. I mean, the opening shot is really memorable and, the, and you cut right to a really crucial piece of action. And I think you get later all the the information that you need to have about this character i don't think you need more i agree that i wouldn't want the film to start differently but i also agree that i do want to know more about who this character was before she died because it's pretty obvious uh, early on in the film what's happened as you say in the keynote if you've seen any of a number of similar stories you you know pretty early on that like she is not quite of this world anymore mm-hmm. you just don't know necessarily what the details are and for me i kept wondering whether her strange affect was just her if that's how mary always was or if it had something to do with the fact that she has gone through this experience and she's a different not even person now she's a different entity now and is that why she feels this strong disconnect to people because that would make sense that she's dead and she's not really existing in this world anymore and so she no longer has a connection to or an interest in other people. That would certainly make sense for both the character and the story, but we don't necessarily have any sort of validation of that idea, which doesn't necessarily have to come through scenes before she dies. It could happen in dialogue. It could mm-hmm. happen in flashback. It could happen even in her thoughts and voiceover, you know? You know, it might even be as simple as like early on, uh, her mentor at the organ is kind of giving her a little speech about how she needs to put her soul into her work, mm-hmm. which she kind of dismisses. And then as he steps off, he talks to somebody else about how uh, her difficulty with soul, which seems both ominous and very appropriate, giving both the title and the theme here. Mm. But uh, just something as simple as she seems different since Mm -hmm. the accident, like something emphasizing a little more about like whether she's been through a profound change or this is a personality she's always had. I mean, wouldn't that conversation suggest that her behavior is not that far removed uh, from what she was before? The accident, right? I don't know. I think I've been spending too much time with uh, the Twin Peaks revival and <laughs> the fact that nobody seems to know that Dougie is incredibly bizarre. Like just the the fact that she's such a strange person and that people people remark on it in a dismissive sort of way, but they don't necessarily remark on it like she's an otherworldly figure. Although that said, I find it very interesting. Her whole relationship with Johnny, the border. Mm-hmm. strikes me as just really interesting for the time because it seems to me that he keeps trying to project onto her what he thinks she should be, what he wants her to be. And that whole relationship has this very strange push and pull as she becomes more and more desperate for company. As she puts it, she's trying to reach out. She's trying to make a connection. But at the same time, he's got what for the time period is just a very conventional idea of what women should be. She's there to amuse him and entertain him and sleep with him. And he gets really hostile and creepy when she refuses to fall into these lines. And I kind of see that from other people as well. The pastor wants her to be this quiet, meek figure who provides the the church with music of a certain kind and in a certain way. He's very upset by the fact that she doesn't want to come around and do ladies' socials. Mm-hmm. The doctor who grabs her in the street, you know, tells her there's no reason to be hysterical. Hysteric- hysteria won't help you. All of these people just seem to see 
a figure of a woman rather than the individual she is. So I'm not entirely convinced that the men back in her hometown have a good idea of who she is or who she used to be. And I mean, I guess you could also say that Harvey's offering up some bit of social commentary as well. I mean, if we're to accept her point of view or sympathize with her point of view, he's painting a world in which she has to be put in this this box that, that you know, she's an outsider and is, isn't conforming with anybody else. And, and maybe uh, he's sort of calling out society for having these um, rituals or mores that, that she has to abide by. There were so many different things that this film reminded me of. When she's driving and we're getting the head-on POV of her driving grimly through the night, it reminded me immensely of Psycho. Oh, sure. As things start to fall apart, which uh, Psycho predated this by two years. But later, as things start to fall apart for her, I was reminded really strongly of Roman Polanski's Repulsion, which wouldn't come along for years. But this was was overtly inspired by Bergman and Cocteau. Are there aspects of their work that you see here? As far as Cocteau is concerned, Orpheus is probably the one. It's that eerie dreamlike quality. I mean, I think that's associated with Cocteau generally, but Orpheus is maybe the darkest expression of that. Um, as far as Bergman, I think it's just, it may just be the style of it. Stark, black and white, spare, unappointed, a film that's concerned with spirituality, the state of the soul. These are all Bergman concerns. So, With Bergman in particular, it feels like there's also just sort of a philosophy there, you know, a philosophy of, of desperation and grimness. This seems like, for her especially, it seems like a very grim and unforgiving world that, again, wants to shape her into a certain thing and won't tolerate her stepping out of it. The filmmakers did cite Orpheus as a specific inspiration, but I really wish that there was a place where they got more into detail about the films that they were watching and, and to what degree they inspired this. The psycho parallels were, were very apparent to mm-hmm. me to the point that I had to go and double check to make sure that Psycho did in fact come out first. Um, the scene that you mentioned, Tasha, but also the bath scene mm-hmm. and the the being encroached upon by the, the fellow boarder during the, the bath and just the creepiness of that. And, and there is some sort of like fiddling with the mechanics of the bathtub that is also reminiscent of, of the shower scene in a certain way. So those two moments in particular really evoke Psycho for me. There's also just that shot, the shot that's in both films of the extreme close-up of the eyeball of the mm. man who's watching her yes. body. Yes. Yeah, it does seem like he, he went out and saw that film. <laughs> um, uh, I was actually just looking through Ingmar Bergman's filmography because the thought occurred to me, like, this was 62, like, where was Bergman in his career? Because, I mean, he was still in the early to mid part of it because I was thinking about you know the trilogy that um, Bergman did it was like Through Glass Darkly and Winter Light and The Silence uh, the trilogy of films that he did but that all happened Through Glass Darkly is the only one that predates Carnival of Souls but one film that really stands out is that influences Wild Strawberries which is one of my favorite Bergman's and one which is about a character who's uh, on a journey he, dri- he, he drives back to his old home and all of these he's an old man and all these old these memories of his youth sort of come flooding back in a very pretty literal sense you know all all these scenes from his life but the way Bergman films it is pretty close to the way uh, Harvey films these zombie-like figures in Carnival, they're gu- ghouls. Ghouls in <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I guess some more ghouls than zombies. No means no one's uh, turned them, but there's a lot of superimposition and and this sense of something that is present but not quite present that is between worlds. I mean, I, I think that 
that's maybe the territory in which Harvey is operating. And so maybe it does the Bergman comparison starts to make a whole lot more sense to me thinking about that movie. What about the industrial film connection? I mean, we're talking about somebody who had a bunch of experience and a, not just a director, but a crew and a writer who all had experience on making educational films for classrooms and libraries and industrial films. There was one uh, apparently about how to not lose your hand in industrial machinery <laughs> that, that they made. Do you see any aspects of kind of that background coming out here? Oh, yeah, for sure. You touched on the the writing, uh, which it, it's certainly apparent there, but also just the framing throughout this film. Like it's, I, I don't. Well, I guess workmanlike is is not necessarily a diss in this context, but like a lot of the the framing in this movie, it just has like two people talking to each other. You know, there's there's not a lot of inventiveness or or imagination in how shots are set up. As we've already talked about, it kind of works for for the film in a strange magical way but you know to go behind the scenes a little bit just the use of found space i think is something that probably comes out of those sorts of films which were not done on sets you know they were done wherever the films were taking place and this movie has two kind of incredible found spaces Mm -hmm. you know the the pavilion on the great salt lake obviously but also that organ factory in the beginning like that that shot of her in the organ is kind of incredible and it's not incredible for the way it is filmed it's incredible for the space it's in which is an incredible space i'm gonna i'm gonna <laughs> object to the, to the well, not incredible for it's filmed because i just i remember the the shot so i mean it's, a, way, it's a good framing shot. of it's it good. so it's not, it's not unusual shot it's not an unusual way to shoot that like how else are you going to shoot that than above are you i, I was gonna know. ask you're like specifically a, talking about the shot down from above where she's kind of all like, the organ pipes yeah, and all surrounding I just, I, uh, that, it's it's a great shot don't get me wrong that's carefully wrought yes but it is directly inspired by the space in which it is filmed. That's true, but I think that's a sign of a strong visual filmmaker is being able to go to a space and, and make a movie around it, be inspired mm-hmm. by it, which is, well, the pavilion part is the real inspiration, but yeah. be able to see that and understand it as like a beautiful metaphor that he could kind of build a movie around. I would say, as far as the industrial influence goes, I mean, I, I, surely he did some car crash movies oh, right yeah. um so that drag scene and that all the, the way that plays out would have to have been something he went, might have worked on at one point or another and then there's that you know documentary like quality again mostly in the beginning when you have the strange overdubbed mm-hmm. d- dialogue but uh but also these just shots of ordinary looking people yeah <laughs> which is a, a kind of a strength of the movie i mean i think if you if you lose a little bit in terms of acting chops, you get an authentically real seeming people and not, not, not actors. I mean, like the, the woman who runs the boarding house, for example, or, or any of those old dudes walking around the, uh, scene of the, the scene of the accident. So you've got that too. But in, 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 of course, the shooting and, you know, kind of stark black and white, that's, uh, I think a feature of a lot of industrial films of that period as well. Yeah, I just mostly I see it so much in the boarding house segments, which, you know, as Genevieve says, just over and over, you're getting these two shots of people standing in a flat space, maybe moving back and forth slightly within the space to a table away from a table. And then you have things like the bath scene, which feels so inspired by Psycho that it it feels like that's where he's getting his shot picks from, which is an industrial. It just shows that when he has a specific inspiration, he gets a lot more colorful with it. But then 
then once you get into that pavilion space, things just get so much more lucid uh, from a directorial standpoint. And it's just it's miraculous to me all over again. The scene in the movie, I think, that that most stands out for me is when she's wandering around slowly exploring that space alone. But in particular, there's the shot where she's looking up at that slide Mm -hmm. and suddenly a mattress comes just out completely out of pitch darkness Mm -hmm. to land next to her, like moving from the back of the frame to the front of the frame. That is just a beautiful cinematic moment. Yeah. You talking about the boarding house just reminded me of another, not Psycho, but another Hitchcock, perhaps influenced shot of when uh, she's looking down the stairs. It's very evocative of, of Vertigo. No. You know, the I mean, that's a shot that I think we've seen a lot of times, you know, the shot down a, or up, but mostly down a like a winding multi-floor set of stairs. But yeah, I, I was just trying to think of like unusual shots that we see in the scenes set in the boarding house and the bath scene. And that scene both come to mind and they both seem influenced by Hitchcock. So, well, I mean, he was making a suspense film during a, an era when yeah. Hitchcock was king of the suspense right. film. And he, he, you know, I hadn't even thought about this. So we haven't mentioned the fact that the, the mysterious stranger that's stalking mm-hmm. her in his pasty white makeup with his, the dark circles under his eyes, that's Herc Harvey himself, mm-hmm. the director. And it had not occurred to me until this very moment that putting himself in the film is also an extreme extremely Hitchcockian <laughs> touch. I just assumed that, you know, he looked at the mirror and said, I I, I could be this. creepy. I could be creepy with the right makeup and bugging my eyes out and shot often from below in a, an eerie fashion. I, I'm guessing that was probably still the prevailing factor. For also, him. whenever you make a movie that's absolute bargain basement exactly, budget, exactly. you, you like, work with what you've got. Role? Me. But that said, I mean, it's just you've got to acknowledge yeah. it's a really Hitchcockian yeah. touch. But then you also have to look at how how not Hitchcocking this film is, right. how little. I mean, the film does build to something, but it's not really conventionally. He doesn't put together like suspense set, set right. pieces necessarily. It's about a sustained uh, mood and, and images, and just kind of like it doesn't. The texture of this thing is just so much its own thing and more European really than American or British I guess well yeah it's got that dreamlike quality which is not particularly Hitchcockian no, I mean, like, even Hitchcock when Hod- did plenty of dream sequences yeah but-, but even when he did dream sequences they were much more strident and aggressive, I would yeah. say, than the the kind of like sleepy Bergman qualities. Yeah, like like here. the Noel, like a Christopher Nolan dream sequence or something like meticulously planned out. <laughs> yeah, uh, like when I think of Hitchcock's brand of suspense, it, it's very much about like what is going to happen. Whereas this movie, I think, is suspenseful in its own way, but it's more centered on what is happening. Mm-hmm. Like, what is this world that I'm in, and why are things the way they are? And it's not so much about like edge of your seat. What is the next? plot development going to be. Getting back to Bergman a little bit, I'm curious what you guys make of the religious angles of the film. Mm-hmm. It's so much is made of the fact that she's she never uses the word atheist, but she's very clear that the all things church mean nothing to her. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting to me in a movie that is wall-to-wall organ music. All of the music <laughs> in this film, uh, from whatever I read, is supplied by organs. And that's particularly interesting, I think, because Organs are kind of a bridge between a sacred music and suspense music, between sort of the spiritual world and the physical world, and that's very deliberately used here. But the fact that she creates music for spiritual settings on a very spiritual instrument, and she herself is very non-spiritual, is particularly interesting in a movie about the afterlife. What do you what do you guys make of all of that? 
I really like the ambiguity of it in that I don't necessarily get a strong read on where Harvey stands on her, whether whether what his attitude is about religion and about whether she is condemned because she doesn't have this connection or whether she's more of a Bergman character who just struggles and struggles and struggles to be a faithful person. I, I don't think that the film is not doesn't really tip its hand one way or the other on that. I don't. I don't think. I, I don't necessarily know that this film has a like something it's specifically saying about religion. It's more just drawing on the idea of a soul being a religious idea, you know. And I think it's interesting that we have the figure of the priest, but we also have the figure of the doctor, who is you know the man of science to the priest's man of faith and. Science and faith are like the two kind of lenses through which you can view the afterlife, you know, and and what happens to you after you die. And neither of these men representing these two worldviews, I guess, recognize what has happened to Mary and maybe aren't capable of recognizing and certainly not understanding it. So if there is a, a message to it, maybe it's that that the afterlife isn't something that can be understood through either religion or science. That's really interesting. One of the questions I was going to ask was essentially what what you think happened here exactly, like how you interpret the ending in terms of kind of timeline, what she is. Uh, But then I found a lengthy statement from her Carvey that explains exactly (laughs) what he thinks she is. Uh, he, He considers her to be a poltergeist. He calls her a psychic emanation. He basically says that because she did not experience her life while she was living it, she had so much connection to life and so much frustration over her the parts of life that she didn't get to that she kind of forces herself back out of a watering grave and back into life but the that the other side comes for her and that to me is not either a scientific or a religious mm-hmm. uh, take on things like that's a very occult take on things and i think this is a very occult movie yeah this movie also just has such a heavy connection with dread there's just that sense of inevitability of of something hanging over her head that she doesn't understand what it is and i'm curious for me an awful lot of that comes from johnny and mm-hmm. his implacable really creepy extremely rapey pursuit of her he's so so creepy (laughs) like that's i think the only other performance in the film that i would call a performance other than candace hilligas is you know the only other person who's not reading lines who has like who's bringing a character man is he a slimy 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 character Mm -hmm. i can't say slimy enough (laughs) describing that character i'm also just very curious about that choice just in the context of the movie because i like i don't think i'm like misreading this from a from a remove of decades or anything but like that guy is objectively creepy no matter what era you're in i think and i'm just I found myself wondering, like, why did he need to be this gross, like, for the story to work? You know, like, what was the thinking by making him so repulsive? Well, I, I think that it's a uh, he's part of a, a comprehensive mm. feeling of threat to her right. and discomfort. And, and there's no this one person that she attempts to cling to for to, to you know, deal with her loneliness and alienation is a total creep. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it, I think that, that heightens the the effect to have him be as, as awful as he is. Scott, I'm mostly, I'm just very 
curious. Like I had a feeling that Genevieve and I would be on the same page about this one. But the level of his sleaziness, I'm just wondering to what degree that hits home for you, to what degree that feels like. <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a creepy person myself, like what? Uh... No, you know what I mean? I mean, he yeah. is, to me, he feels like, uh, like at the beginning when he kind of forces his way into mm-hmm. her room and eyes up her body when he knows she's in the bath, when he keeps dropping lines like, you're going to need me in the evening, too. You just don't know about it yet. He feels like a rape threat and a, a rape threat that won't go away. But I feel like he changes into something very different towards the end of his time in the film. Hmm. I'm curious how you process his character. I, I guess maybe I didn't really process the the change you're talking about. Like, in what sense? Yeah, I'm a little curious about that, too, actually. Oh, well, I mean, the scene at the dance hall where he he takes her out dancing more or less against her will. And he kind of goes into, like, a, a familiar nice guy syndrome dance of, you know, I've taken you out. I've bought your drink. You know, that stuff isn't free and you're not even drinking it. You're mm. not doing what I want. Like, how dare you not respond to me? And, and he gets really petulant, which is, you know, something you see in nice guy syndrome. But by the time they get back to her room, he, like he's frightened. He's frightened and he's alienated. And I think reasonably and rationally so by her incredibly erratic behavior and by the fact that like he keeps trying to push her into a box, but she goes willingly into the box sometimes and then pops out at erratic moments. And I I really started to feel for him by the end of his his sequence in the film. I really started to feel for what it must be like to be getting such insanely mixed signals from this woman who pushes him away, pulls him close, shrieks in his face, mm-hmm. bursts into tears, clutches him. Like I, there's just there's a lot going on with that relationship. Yeah, I guess I maybe didn't really think about it in terms of him. I think I was just thinking about her response to to him and her response to the situation and yet never really occurred to me to consider his perspective on it at all i'm sorry I, Look, well, honey, I can't. Honey, you ask me and you it's like me a little huh What's the matter with you? What's going on around here? What's the matter with you? Ben's after me. You gotta stop him. He's after me again. I'm getting out. Now you have to go. Not me, sister. That's just what I need. Get mixed up with some girl who's off her rocker. I'm glad you reminded me of the moment where she sees him turn to the ghoul in in the mirror at the end there. Um, I think that kind of maybe helps explain his character a little bit and, frankly, all the other human characters she interacts with in this movie. And then, like, the whole point of the movie seems to be that, like, forces, let's, let's say demons, are, like, calling her back to the afterlife. And I think it's definitely possible to read the human characters in the the priests the doctor johnny even the the boarding house lady who all have this like very strange affect as like demons in and of themselves who are driving her away you know through their strange behavior and their strange interactions with her and i think just that shot where johnny becomes the thing that that is haunting her maybe underlines that connection a little bit man this is such a dark movie just watching it 
it's a frightening horror movie about a woman pursued by creatures, by demons, by ghouls, as you say. Mm -hmm. But when you put it in that light, it becomes the story of a woman that doesn't belong anywhere, that's facing a horrible future, but has nowhere to go except a horrible past. She just really doesn't fit in anywhere she goes. Well, She's arguably also not a woman anymore, depending on how you you read that or, you know, if she's a a poltergeist, like she has become divorced from her humanity. And by that logic, humanity is also an opposing force, you know, at this point in her afterlife, I guess. What we get of, you know, mortals is not a particularly um, friendly view on the part of the film. I mean, and there's kind of a conspiratorial body snatchers like quality too to that to some of the conversations that go on. I, I seem to recall at the end of her time in the boarding house of uh, the boarding house woman talking to Johnny. Is it is it Johnny or is it somebody or is it an older like, gentleman? She, uh, she's talking to the doctor. I doctor. Believe. Okay. Yes. Just but, but both of them kind of like, oh boy, I can't, she can't wait for her to get yeah. out of here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there is this kind of sense that they're all on the same page and she's someone else or something else. Well, I think there's a lot more to say about the particular afterlife of this movie and what it has to say about the, the experience of being a soul. But I think we're going to save that for part two when we bring it into context with a ghost story. Um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask, have either of you seen the 1998 Carnival of Souls, which is apparently not a remake or a sequel so much as a sidequel, as near as I can tell? I did not even know it existed before now, so no. I, I'm i actually looking it up to see if I reviewed it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really the only way I know about... Nope. I haven't seen it. I've certainly had that experience of looking up a, a terrible small film yep. to see if I reviewed it. Yeah, that's there's not me. So much history. Nope. So we were still around. The AV Club was still around, but we. Oh might no, we not did. We actually online. did. It, we did review the uh, Adam Grossman film Carnival of Souls. Keith reviewed it. And Keith Phipps. Um, well, Keith, wherever you are right now, in whatever uh, liminal plane between life and death, uh, we wish you were here to tell us about Carnival of Souls. I found some interviews with Candace Hillegas online talking about this movie, and uh, I want to bring those up in your next picture show because, boy, do I have some recommendations for you guys about some some extra reading you can do about Carnival of Souls. So come back in two days to hear about that. <laughs> well, until then. Um, We're going to go to break, but we'll be right back. Well, while you guys were busy discussing Babe and Netflix's extremely weird dark movie, Okja, I was off enjoying a delicious burrito filled with lettuce and pork (laughs) carnitas. Mmm, good. So you guys are in a better place than I am to answer the short feedback letter about that podcast set. Uh, Genevieve, you want to read this for us? Sure. Jara writes, what kind of movie is Babe? Choose one answer from the two options below and discuss. Option A, a heartwarming story of an adorable orphan pig that wins the love and respect of all the animals, including humans, on Hoggett Farm. Option B, a horrifying tale of a calculating pig that postpones his own execution by shrewdly asserting himself as the capo or sonder commando of Hoggett Farm. (laughs) Discuss. I I enjoy this letter very much. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) But I mean, that's... All right. So positioning Babe as a sonder commando, as one of the Jews who 
served as trustees in the concentration, the German concentration camps in World War II, and helped the Germans kill other Jews in exchange for extending their own lives. That is grim and dark. <laughs> now, to be fair, that's more of a babe, babe pig in the thing. city. Yeah, yeah well, a babe thing. I mean, both of these films are, in their way, kind of grim and dark, mm-hmm. but. It's not entirely off base either. Like he's not actively leading other pigs up the chute to their death or anything. But still, like in any children's story about a pig uh, postponing getting getting eaten, there is the implication that all of the other pigs on the farm are still getting eaten. I mean, if if sheep had to be killed in order to gather their wool, mm-hmm. I, I would I would choose option B. But because they don't, no. <laughs> I, I think I think I will stick with the the surface reading of this. But I do really appreciate uh, this this letter and made me laugh. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, I'm surprised that there weren't more letters about Okja, given how weird and disturbing that film is. I'm surprised Uh, we didn't get more letters about me eating my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that that did go to a strange place. I I mean, what are you you people out there doing, if not uh, condemning Genevieve for eating her dog? Are we asking for a flood of uh, (laughs) letters about that? A flood of angry dog letters? I mean, I've I've seen pictures. He does look delicious. But hey, you know what he would be really good in is a burrito with some lettuce. Mm. But here's a letter about our previous pairing, specifically about It Comes at Night and what really goes on in that movie. Um, as a warning to those who haven't seen it, this letter is a little speculative about what, what is happening in this movie in a way that could be potentially spoilery. Uh, Scott, do you want to read this for us? Uh, sure. Quinton writes, I am someone in the camp of finding It Comes at Night mostly agreeable, but not overly perplexing. Siding hard with Tasha that Schultz's extratextual grief is somewhat of a skeleton key here. Travis's perspective, plus the confusion surrounding his dreams, painted him to be an unreliable guide through the story. With the boy too short to reach the locks upon the red door and everyone else asleep, it seems most likely that Travis rose and retrieved the dog in a dream, perhaps. Travis also had the greatest interest in retrieving it, the dog being the last thing given to him by his grandfather. His grandfather haunted his dreams, coming at night, a grief represented in abyssal blacks lurking about a lantern light, a house of such deep shadows, nightly patrolled by the grieving, with all the death happening outside seems like a metaphor to me. In Peter Bruegel's painting, The Hunters in the Snow, there operates on the same wavelength as Lars von Trier's use of it in Melancholia. The final illness, likely contracted from the dog, if my theory holds, represents Travis succumbing to the grief of his grandfather. So overall, I think It Comes at Night is not a horror movie at all, but a family drama adapting horror conventions, much like Schultz's Krisha, to explore the nature of grief. Like the plagued grandfather in The Nightmare or the shadow volumes of this movie, grief is a bituminous pitch capable of consuming your life. The apocalypse is a framing device. Grief cuts you off from the world. This is elegant. But too is elegant. I don't like. I don't like that. Sorry. That's fancy. That's fancy writing. That is some fancy writing, but it's also some really deft plot unpacking yeah. because the question of how the door gets opened, how the disease comes into the house, uh, exactly what went on there is it's a pretty big open mystery in that movie, and this interpretation of it to me would bring it together thematically in a a pretty nifty way Mm -hmm. in terms of making sense of the fact that the film focuses so much on Travis's dreams. Well, if he did something horrific in a dream without realizing that he did it, that would actually make all of those dreams that I objected to so much 
more of a narrative element and less of a way to get outside the narrative element. And bringing it all back to the grief over the grandfather also kind of justifies the the jump scares involving the grandfather, which otherwise seem a little unjustified by the narrative. I mean, to me, this this is a really nice bridging of deliberately left gaps. I just I find this a really elegant solution to a lot yeah, of problems. It connects it even more to to Krisha too. It makes the film seem like they're you know partnered up all the more. It's an interesting thought. I mean, it's just it's so interesting to me how it comes at night just marinates an ambiguity i mean because you, you so you can come up with all sorts of different theories with support about what the film is what the film's doing what is happening in the film um i think that's a strength you could look at it from the, another way and say uh schultz did not assert a strong clear vision here and so we're left with a movie that is confusing and um not resolved properly you could look at it that way I like the other way of looking at it, which is that you know there's a lot of questions out there, a lot of room for interpretation, and I think Quentin has done a nice job here of coming up with his with his own angle with lots of support. I think that Schultz does make a very convincing case that he knows the answers to these questions, but I also think that by leaving them open, he leaves us the opportunity to speculate, and this is just, I think, a really good piece of speculation. Incidentally, that letter also suggested the original Solaris as a potential pairing for It Comes at Night given that Solaris also features protagonists haunted by dreams representing people they miss and were close to and cannot let go of until their lives are consumed by the dreams. He points out that the same Bruegel painting is in both films and that in Solaris, one of the scientists quotes a line from Don Quixote, quote, they come at night, but one must sleep sometime, end quote. What do we think of that, folks? Mind blown. Yeah. I don't I know. know. I, I, like that, that brutal Here painting. Here we are. We're like, let's do the thing. <laughs> <laughs> like a bunch of like, a bunch of, like <laughs> lunkheads. We couldn't go for like the more elevated picture. We had to go for the low down genre movie. Speaking of elevated pictures, like that Bruegel painting comes up a lot, much like uh, the the Garden of Delights triptych comes up a lot in cinema. It's just it's so visually evocative of a certain brand of horror. Speaking of potential pairings, I wanted to mention one because we talk about sometimes about discarded ideas that we have for pairings with different movies. Um, during when I, while I was watching. A ghost story. Of course, I thought, well, Colonel of Souls, of course, that's a great choice because you've got this you know, character between worlds and this sort of purgatorial situation and this very interesting mood. I get it. Very good connection. But how about Beetlejuice? Wouldn't <laughs> Beetlejuice have been a fun pairing with a ghost story? I mean, I I would love to talk about Beetlejuice yeah. always, but I've seen Beetlejuice and I hadn't seen Carnival people of Souls. Trapped so. in, people trapped in this house, <laughs> you know, and, uh, that, that's being uh, taken over. Tasha's just shaking her head. Remodeled. I'm, I'm shaking my head because it's just, it's too on the nose. I mean, the, the sequence. <laughs> too obvious. The sequence in David Lowry's A Ghost Story where everybody suddenly breaks to sing the Banana Boat song. It's just, it's it lines yeah. up too neatly. It's too You made obvious. the joke I was trying to make in my head, but couldn't formulate it. Yeah. Damn you, Tasha. Yeah, I mean, I I think, I think I think there is at least one, you know, ghost with a sh- the, 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 yeah. Of course, the the Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis wear sheets, sheets over to, their when, heads. They're, when they're trying to be when they're trying to scare off uh, the new occupants. They 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 go for the classic ghost look. And then there's that sequence in David Lowry's Ghost Story where everybody's eaten by sandworms, giant animated sandworms. <laughs> oh, Tasha. Yeah, I, I mean, it's there certainly are connections to Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> 
I, I like this one so much better. I, I, the, here's the thing. I suspect that 95% of people listening to this podcast have seen Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. But when we, whenever we get the opportunity, I suspect that 50% of the people no, I'm listening not saying, to this podcast I'm not had, already heard, had already watched uh, Carnival of Souls because that's the way our audience rolls. I'm just saying – I'm saying Carnival of Souls is the right choice. But – but let's put a pin in, in Beetlejuice for for later. That's a good one. <laughs> a beautiful bunch of ripe bananas. Maybe what if we pair Beetlejuice with the nineteen ninety eight Carnival of Souls sidequel? <laughs> now there's an idea. Unfortunately, Candace Hillegas will track us down and murder us in our sleep if we watch that movie. I'm telling you, she is not a fan. But you'll have to stay tuned to find out more. I love this teasing of the next episode. <laughs> uh, well, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response in a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll drape sheets over our heads, knock the pictures off the wall, and whisper into the mics as we discuss David Lowry's terrific, unconventional haunted house film, A Ghost Story. Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Check out our fancy new updated site at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be sitting on the floor of this studio, each eating an entire pie. See you next time. <laughs>